Hello. As you can tell, I am not David Smith. My name is Amanda DeMano, and I'm David's partner in the Medicaid and Vulnerable Populations work at Avia. And I'm your host for this special episode. In this podcast you are about to listen to, I'm joined by some of my teammates to share with you unique insights on COVID-19 impacts to vulnerable populations, how the project has extended its definition of vulnerable in these unprecedented times, and what solutions are immediately available and being implemented across our network in response. We've got a great conversation for you to listen in on, and I hope you will stay through to the end where we offer three must-dos and where to find our guidance on how and where to take action. Hello and welcome to our listeners today. I'm Amanda DeMano, Vice President at Avia, supporting our Medicaid Transformation Project and our Center for Health Value Creation. I am joined today by two directors from our center. Hey, everybody. This is Sarah Carroll. Nice to be here. And hi, folks. This is Vic Siklavon. Nice to be here as well. So, Sarah and Vic, we're going to take our listeners on a bit of a departure from our normal programming on this podcast. Uh, But this post-COVID world has been nothing if not a departure from normal. Avia and our, and our project has a unique ability to bring together health systems and plans to accelerate digital adoption and make that focused on delivering financial and clinical results. Vic, can you weigh in on how your work has changed as the COVID-19 crisis began to unfold? I would start by saying what hasn't changed. Stepping back and looking at the the industry writ large, we've witnessed an adoption of digital technologies at an unprecedented scale and rapidity since the onset of the the pandemic. Telehealth and telemedicine are the big stories here, but we've also seen a rapid adoption of other technologies, including online CBT platforms, guided interactions by text and chat, and plenty of other sort of digital health technologies that Avia's role has historically been to serve as a liaison between our member health systems and many of these promising digital health companies. So we at Avia have been focusing um, much of our efforts during the pandemic on connecting our members to those digital health companies. And we've done uh, a ton of interviewing and and, uh, researching many of the, the companies to understand the things that they have been doing specifically to support health systems and even health plans during the pandemic. And we've made sure to connect those digital health companies to our our members where we feel there's a great fit. It's been challenging and involved work, but work that we were particularly well positioned to do given our long time focus on on digital health and, and building that out as an asset class on behalf of our members. Absolutely. And then, you know, the other side of this, uh, beyond what the solution companies offer, Sarah, can you share what some of the digital adoption trends have been from the Avia network? It's safe to say that health systems have implemented more digital solutions in the last two weeks than in the prior two years. In fact, one of our Avia network members shared that they went from providing 12 virtual visits in the entirety of 2019 to over 100,000 visits just in the last six weeks. So the trend wow. is, is truly dramatic. And I've witnessed two observations. Primarily, it feels as if there has been a reactive phase that really started in March. And as the calendar turned to April, 
I'm seeing a proactive phase now as we look ahead. So just a couple of uh, words on each of those phases. In the reactive phase, seeing tremendous pace and scale in terms of both virtual visits and remote monitoring. On the virtual visit side, we've seen synchronous video consults that are aiming to reduce the avoidable visits. Several of our members have reported positive feedback from both clinicians and patients indicating that patient satisfaction scores were actually higher now than they were um, before the crisis hit with in-person visits. One member told us that nearly one-third of their video visits are new patients, and they're experiencing a strong and steady referral stream, which means that at least the, the signs that I'm reading indicate that patients were hungry for this type of engagement. Providers weren't always convinced that this type of engagement would be as successful, but they too are embracing the ease at which these solutions have stood up. And several of our Avia network members have told us there's no going back to pre-COVID, the pre-COVID pace and scale of the transition to telehealth. On the remote monitoring side, we've seen the deployment of more devices like pulse oximeters that pull, push data to clinical staff as well as text messaging to relay symptom changes for COVID patients who weren't uh, sick enough to be admitted, but the clinical staff wants to monitor their symptoms to track any changes and get them the help they need as quickly as possible. So those are two examples of what we've seen in the reactive phase. Moving ahead in the proactive phase, I think what our health system members are facing is looking at the hidden pain that the pandemic has caused. So members are beginning to double down on work that they had started before the pandemic and with greater urgency, such as addressing mental health and social needs. And as we've all seen in the news, social needs, including food and housing, food insecurity continues to be a massive concern as we've seen lines wrap around buildings multiple times to get food relief to individuals in need. I can't imagine a more unique crisis that could have accelerated the work like this. Vic, uh, can you share a little bit of our thinking on a new expansion of who's vulnerable? Previously, our focus was on those populations that were that were covered by by Medicaid. But as we've watched the pandemic unfold over the past month, month and a half, we've realized that it's important to expand the definition of vulnerable populations to anyone who is really susceptible or at higher risk for a negative outcome uh, associated with, with COVID-19. And, you know, that, that definition risks being a little bit too expansive because I think in, you know, our playbook and in various other publications, you know, we'd argue that, that most, if not all of us are impacted in some way by the pandemic. So, when we say vulnerable populations, we, of course, begin with the elderly, who, of course, are at highest risk of morbidity and mortality from COVID-19. The other vulnerable population are those folks with chronic illness and uh, underlying conditions like asthma and diabetes, 
are major risk factors for, for COVID-19. So, you know, we've expanded our definition of vulnerable populations to include these. But beyond those, we've also turned our attention to, to a, couple, a couple other populations that um, are equally important and perhaps not, not as... Um, not as well documented or, or often reported on, and those are folks with behavioral health needs. You know, uh, we would include as part of that those folks who have acute behavioral health conditions like serious mental illness or substance use disorder. But we also feel that it's especially important to focus on on those individuals with mild or moderate behavioral health needs. And we would include as part of that definition health system employees, many of whom are, are our frontline workforce in, in the pandemic response. And we feel it's especially important to make behavioral health services available to those folks, especially during this, this initial phase when they're facing considerable stress, both the workers themselves and their families. I think as part of that, that definition, we would also include folks who are, are financially vulnerable, you know, low-income individuals who are under those circumstances pre-COVID-19, but also those folks who are newly financially unstable, we would argue that, that those folks who are financially unstable are at risk of, of developing or, or having exacerbations in behavioral health concerns. We've also looked at individuals at risk of do- domestic violence, and then also those folks who are homebound and have disabilities and, and require often high-touch in-home care. We feel it's important to, to also consider those, those populations. Yeah, the, the weight is so heavy now of who is vulnerable. Sarah, what are your perspectives on the consequences of health systems and payers who have not acted? We, our collective team, sees three major consequences of not acting. Physical health outcomes, behavioral health, and financial health of both the populations that we serve as well as the financial health of the health systems we serve. But first, on, on the physical health outcomes, clearly, as Vic mentioned earlier, we are concerned about individuals with chronic conditions and the elderly who generally require a higher touch uh, type of relationship-based care over time. And unfortunately, through this crisis, that type of care has been broadly disrupted as a result of COVID-19. And without that type of high-touch, ongoing care, these individuals' conditions will likely worsen. Many likely already have, and that will drive a host of negative outcomes, longer lengths of stay, greater cost of care delivered, and that all of these considerations will further strain an already stretched health system. In addition, at least 85% of physicians say that unmet social needs, such as hunger and housing, directly lead to worse health. Before the pandemic, we saw social needs show up in avoidable ED visits, extended lengths of stay, readmissions, and now with the financial challenges that millions of Americans face, we expect population health to decline if access to care continues to shrink or doesn't rebound and as these social needs climb. Vic, I'll turn it over to you to reflect on the consequences of not acting regarding behavioral health. This question 
uh, of continuity of care is just as important in the realm of behavioral health. It's interesting in this time when health systems are doing a lot of the basic blocking and tackling, if you will, to support the pandemic response, that that risks disrupting essential care and services for those individuals who may not have COVID-19, but require ongoing longitudinal and in some cases even high-touch care. So one of the things that we've been emphasizing in, in the behavioral health space is the need to make sure that these individuals continue to receive that care. And because they can't receive that care in in-person settings, healthcare organizations are going to need to think uh, more critically and creatively about how to do that when they're balancing so many other priorities. But stepping into behavioral health, I would, you know, I would say that the, the continuity of care problem is made worse by the fact that even before the emergence and spread of, of uh, COVID-19, the U.S. was experiencing a, a behavioral health treatment crisis. We did a lot of work late last year in, in the substance use disorder space. I'll, I'll talk about that because in many ways, I think it, it serves as a sort of microcosm for the behavioral health industry. So, you know, in, in SUD, we talk of this concept called the treatment gap. So pre-COVID-19, about 90% of the 20 million Americans or so who have a substance use disorder were not receiving any form of treatment for, for their SUD. That's 18 million Americans who are not receiving any treatment at all for, for their, their chronic condition. Those same issues that we dealt with and, and continue to deal with in substance use disorder, I think, can be mapped to behavioral health writ large. And really, the question now in the wake of the pandemic becomes, what happens when you take an already inadequate behavioral health care delivery infrastructure and, and introduce a pandemic that further strains the workforce. I don't think at this early stage we can, we can say exactly what's, what's going to happen, but I think it's probably fair to say that that doesn't exactly bode well for behavioral health over the next uh, coming months and, and years. Already we're seeing that social isolation, economic hardship, trauma, care disruption, all of these things are creating even greater demand for behavioral health services that were in short supply. So again, you know, I, I would emphasize that, that healthcare organizations need to prioritize this now, and they need to think creatively about how to expand access to these services while balancing their other priorities. Sarah, social needs are clearly an opportunity here. What digital solutions really can support social needs? This is often an invisible need, and I'm so glad that you raised it. We've seen a number of really best-in-class solutions over the last three to four years improve their ability to connect individuals to community resources and then close the loop, providing in information back to health systems to track whether or not those individuals access the services and then if the service itself had any impact upon that person's utilization as well as their health outcomes. Several other solutions in the space also have COVID-19 tags so that individuals and health systems who are using the solutions can quickly find resources dedicated to supporting individuals with COVID-19. And then finally, many health systems over the last several years have begun to employ community health workers. We've seen a tremendous return on investment in the literature around the impact that these folks with lived experience in navigating a complex healthcare system, perhaps with lower health 
health literacy, less education, or other intrinsic challenges face. And those community health workers are a vital source of helpful information and support to people with social needs. We've seen many of those health systems turn to digital solutions to enable community health workers to continue in their job, but to do so at a safe distance, whether that is through video visits or text support. We think that health systems with community health workers are well-suited to support their communities with social needs. The third aspect of the impact of not acting is more about the financial situation, the economics that are expected, you know, with 26 million new unemployment claims, you know, at the time of this podcast uh, recording, it leads us to assume that many will be losing their health insurance and that this is going to have a major impact on the economics for health systems and payers. You know, systems that have strategies to just improve commercial payer mix are really not likely to be successful. You know, I think about that there's a lot of talk within our network about bringing back elective surgeries. And while that's really an important part of a financial recovery for a health system, you know, there's a risk that the pool of eligible patients has really been impacted because some have lost their insurance um, because of the job loss. So ultimately, I think systems, the way I think about it, are going to have to find ways to meet, you know, margin on Medicaid care uh, more directly, addressing appropriate utilization, expanding access through virtual means, driving new clinical innovation, and targeting patients appropriately to provide the health value is really going to become vital moving forward. So I'm an optimist and I like to think about solutions. (laughs) Sarah, what solutions do we have to recommend to our listeners about how we can help health systems support the idea of your first topic, physical health? Yeah, thanks for that. I, I too am an optimist. We will come out of this even stronger than we entered it. And we're seeing a lot of really creative entrepreneurs who are leaning into this challenge. I'd like to mention a couple services that are free as well as some services that may be existing within a health systems toolkit, but but perhaps were not deployed in a way that we need them to be deployed now. For So first of all, the, the free services that are out there, we've seen a really unique application that offers COVID-19 vulnerability maps for hotspotting. I was curious about how my zip code stacked up compared to my parents' zip code and my mother-in-law's zip code in Florida. I just easily typed in my zip code and found how great the risk is for me and my family here in Minnesota. A second free solution that I think is just really creative is the idea of tracking open beds as well as equipment. You think about the challenges that our health systems have faced in acquiring an adequate supply of PPE and ventilators. This particular solution is tracking that type of equipment and open beds and ensuring that any community at a given time has capacity for whatever needs may come their way. 
three or so other solutions that may exist on a shelf somewhere or had been used in different ways that could be deployed in this environment include text messaging, specifically culturally responsive text messaging. And what I mean by that is, you know, clearly providing messages in the language that the community served will understand at the reading level that their literacy could comprehend, as well as uh, attendance to specific cultural norms for a given population. And we're seeing some pretty tremendous results that have come from offering text messaging services. For example, Providence Health is seeing an 80% adoption rate of their text-based remote monitoring solution. And they're offering advice on where to get tested, how to seek care, hygiene tips, and more. Another type of solution for physical health include remote monitoring devices for elders, even non-COVID patients, such as new parents who are just being discharged from labor and delivery, whether they have COVID-19 or not. In fact, an interesting study was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in the last couple of weeks. Columbia University Medical Center had screened all incoming patients to their labor and delivery department for COVID-19, a whopping 13% of the patients presenting in L&D were asymptomatic but did have coronavirus. And so at discharge, we are seeing a recommendation to discharge with pulse oximeters, including thermometers, in some cases a blood pressure cuff if the patient has high blood pressure or pregnancy-related hypertension to track the illness, but as well as to track mom's and baby's health in the early weeks at home. And then finally, I'll just mention another solution that I find fascinating and really speaks to the higher level of collaboration that we're seeing within individual metropolitan areas and statewide. In the state of Oregon, health systems have begun using an ADT-based care collaboration network to identify, treat, trace, and analyze individuals who are at risk or have been exposed to COVID-19. And that's especially going to be important as we turn this corner past the surge and into our new normal where many experts are recommending we broadly expand those capabilities. It'll be really interesting to see how healthcare organizations are leveraging some of these narrower offerings that are getting a lot of traction in this early part of the pandemic and and seeing how they eventually stitch these various solutions together to create more ambitious offerings with other healthcare organizations and and community partners and and state agencies. So we'll keep our our ears to the ground on that. We've covered a lot of ground here, but Let's boil it down, and I'm going to put you both on the spot. As health systems really move beyond the surge period and move more into a rolling recovery and the new normal, what are the top three things that we would advise our members? Sarah, I'll put you on the spot first. Health systems have acted with such 
uh, fast pace that we may see some cases of buyer's remorse. If that is the case, I'd encourage folks to revisit this, the decisions they made about triage and navigation tools. There's so many wonderful offerings in the space, and I would encourage health systems to um, really review the features and functionalities. So expecting health systems to want to continue to manage their ED capacity and keep lower risk patients at home or directed to more appropriate sources of care. The second capability I would really encourage would be to enable care managers and other frontline staff to support benefits enrollment into Medicaid, SNAP, the WIC program, any other social safety net program that will help the 26 million plus unemployed individuals get the care and support that they need during these challenging times. We're moving into a a phase where where Medicaid enrollment is going to increase and in providing for the financial security of patients and members is, is going to be especially important. Our ability to do that as a healthcare industry and do it do it quickly and with you know with aplomb is is going to be I think critical to ensuring that that people remain healthy through through these these challenging times. So would would definitely emphasize that point. I would also add that Remote monitoring represents an interesting investment uh, thesis for for healthcare organizations in the pandemic. And I think building on a on a point I made earlier, understanding how to stitch together a remote monitoring offering with, say, a, a telehealth offering, I think is is going to be an interesting avenue for for healthcare organizations to pursue. In particular, I think the pandemic has presented a pretty interesting opportunity to expand in-home care capabilities. Of course, you know, the push to deliver this kind of care to the elderly and those with chronic conditions predated the pandemic. You know, we traditionally talked of this as sort of the push to, to help individuals age in place. But it's worth noting that many of the components of a successful in-home care offering are gathering significant traction during the pandemic. And we've discussed telehealth already. Remote monitoring is another you know, key component of, of such an offering. And it's especially important to ensuring that individuals not only receive the ongoing care they need during this pandemic, but are also equipped to, to self-manage in the home and avoid high-risk hospital visits during this time. So, yeah, I would, I would definitely point our, our listeners to, to remote monitoring as, a, as an interesting investment opportunity. Yeah, and Vic, I will take an opportunity to double down on that and less of an investment thesis and more of a like investment no-brainer um, to put a really bold point on it. From my perspective, remote monitoring is is going to be really critical in this rolling recovery period and, and how to enable patients to self-manage, but uh, enable the health systems to manage as well. So, you know, in, in speaking of investments, you know, the, the CARES Act is something we've been following pretty closely and expands access to funding for implementation of things like remote monitoring and other telehealth or virtual health capabilities. While all the avenues of funding are not quite clear from HHS, there are some direct funds uh, given to the FCC and USDA to help health systems in, the, in their efforts. Sarah, can you share with our listeners a, a quick rundown of these programs? 
Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for raising them. So we are truly grateful to Congress for passing that $2 trillion CARES Act. It was the first of many policy decisions that have been made to support providers. And two of the funds that we're watching closely and in fact are advising our clients to apply for and how to apply for them successfully include the FCC, that's the Federal Communications Commission, $200 million telecom health program. The FCC also is offering a $100 million connected care pilot program. And third is the USDA, that's the Department of Agriculture's distance learning and telemedicine grant program. So first on the FCC programs, the FCC has announced 17 winners of their telehealth program to date. They're looking to spend this money very quickly to enable greater use and expansion of telehealth. They're offering up to a million dollars to expand both telecommunication and information services as well as connected devices to support low-income and veteran communities to increase access to health care. Our team has advised five health systems to date on their application, and we will continue to do so until all that funding has been awarded. Again, this is a tremendous opportunity for health systems, as well as smaller providers like FQHCs, to really jumpstart their transition to telehealth. The $100 million Connected Care Pilot Program offered through FCC has a few more strings attached. The application process is lengthier and the expectations are higher, but again, another amazing opportunity. The goals of this program are threefold. One is to ensure connected care everywhere, so accessibility through information services with expanded use of broadband. Secondly, the goal is to improve health outcomes, and third, the goal is to reduce the total cost of care, and the FCC has identified a number of conditions that they are looking to support, namely individuals with substance use disorders, behavioral health needs, high-risk pregnancies, folks with diabetes, and other conditions are highlighted in that, in that funding opportunity. But again, this program has a higher bar, and the FCC is looking for organizations with previous experience launching telehealth programs. They're really signaling to the marketplace that they are looking to double down and expand the, the most successful stories accomplished to date. And then finally, that USDA distance learning and telemedicine grant program, that's truly aimed at rural communities that are particularly vulnerable due to physician shortages as well as community hospital closures. That has a little bit higher of a bar as well, a more uh, lengthy grant application process, but taken together, those three funding opportunities present a unique opportunity for health systems to really expand their existing services. Thank you. Yeah, I really uh, I hope that as there's any action a health system listener might take away, it's going after some of uh, those opportunities where they apply and getting everything that we can out of them. So we are more than a podcast. Uh, Avia has a lot of other resources that back up some of the insights that we shared with you today. Can you share the exciting outcome we have of our AHA partnership and more about our Avia Connect? Yeah, certainly happy to. So all 
5,000 hospitals that are um, members of the American Hospital Association have access to a tool that Avia has created. It's called the COVID-19 Digital Response Pulse. It is essentially an online assessment of the digital capabilities that are most important for health systems as they think about addressing the challenges uh, during the, the COVID-19 pandemic, both in kind of this initial phase and, and also into the subsequent rolling recovery phase. So that's one, one resource I would point out for our listeners. The second is the rapid response playbooks that we have developed that are available in our Avia Connect COVID-19 resource hub. We've developed playbooks for a couple different areas, and those include clinical care, operations, and and community coordination. And together, these playbooks provide our research and diligence around free and uh, reduced-cost digital resources that are available to, to healthcare organizations during this time. They also include case studies showing examples of how health systems have stitched together some of these these solutions and what early results they've seen. And finally, there are specific recommendations uh, around what to keep in mind when serving vulnerable populations and which digital solutions and and strategies are best positioned to meet the needs of some of the the groups that, that we mentioned earlier in this conversation. Great. Thank you. If there's any listeners that have additional questions, um, please feel free to visit us at aviahealthinnovation.com. You'll find links to that portal for COVID-related response materials that Vic mentioned. Also, contacts at avia.health is our inbox to invite any industry partners, health systems, payers to ask questions and and uh, engage us for how we can help you in your COVID response and journeys. Thanks again, and thanks to our sponsor, Ziegler, of our podcast series for the Medicaid Transformation Project. Sarah, Vic, and on behalf of the whole team, thank you for your time and representing the the hard work that uh, we've been putting together. Have a great day.